Welcome to the Daily Bite. I'm your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Let's study Hebrews chapter 8. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the, heaven, in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is the word of the Lord. Don't you love it when you're listening to a sermon or a podcast or just some sort of a, a teaching, and the teacher, the preacher himself, stops and says, okay, this is it. Here's the point. If you're going to get anything today, it's this. That's what the preacher just did here, right? The point in what we are saying is this. Jesus is the high priest of a better covenant. That's the point of today's text. Perhaps, arguably, the point of the book. You've got the old covenant, and you've got it contrasted with the new covenant. So, let's take a look at those. And this is a question that you can ask your children if they know what the old covenant is, if they know what the new covenant is. You can see down in verse 9 the description of when the old covenant came. It's tied into God bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. So that means it's connected to Moses It's connected to Mount Sinai. It's connected to the Ten Commandments. It's connected to the giving of the priesthood. So that the Old Covenant was essentially this. God gave them his law, and they were to follow it. If they followed it, they would live long in the land that they were going to possess. They would be his people. 
That's the gist. I mean, in its simplest, right? When they break the covenant, when they fail, when they fall into sin, they had a a means for reconciliation with God, and that was through the priest who would offer sacrifices for them. Well, they would offer the sacrifice. They would give it to the priest. He would then slaughter that animal, and he would bring the blood before the Lord. So you've got that happening so frequently. You get to the point where in Malachi, we hear from the priests themselves that they are they're sick of it. They're so tired of all the blood, and they, they don't want to do it anymore. The old covenant, we couldn't keep it. It's not that it failed us, it's that we, we simply failed. I mean, we talk that way about the law, too. It's not that the law of God is bad. The law of God is good, but we failed to keep it. And so we bear the consequence for that. So you've got this old covenant picture, which includes the tabernacle, the place where God promised that he would dwell with his people. So on Mount Sinai, he gives Moses a blueprint, the the perfect pattern by which to, to build this tabernacle, this tent where God would dwell among them. And it's going to be holy. Eventually, when they settle in the promised land, the second king, third king of Israel, Solomon, gets to build a permanent structure, well, it should have been permanent, and in the earthly temple. But because of faithlessness, that permanent dwelling will later be torn down. So here's your point. All of that's done. Right? Verse 13, God is making the first one obsolete when he speaks of the new one. The old covenant is ready to vanish. So what is this new covenant? What is the second covenant that we are given? And that's a question that, again, put before your kids. See if they can get it. This new covenant is the one that Jesus gave to his disciples on Monday, Thursday, as they sat in the upper room, and as they were celebrating the Passover together. And all of a sudden, he changed the script from talking about the Salvation God delivered to the people of Israel by bringing them out of Egypt, which again is in our text today as well. All of a sudden he starts talking about the salvation from our sins that comes through his blood. The new covenant is the Lord's Supper. And Jesus is the one who makes the offering. All right, let's look at the text. We have such a high priest. He's no longer part of the old covenant priesthood. They had to offer sacrifices for their own sins before they could offer them for the people. When they came to the temple or the tabernacle to make those, uh, the day of atonement sacrifice, the one time a year uh, that the high priest would come into the actual throne room of God and, and put the blood of the people's sacrifice on the Ark of the Covenant itself, the throne of God itself, he then had to leave. He couldn't remain there because he wasn't perfect was a very temporary moment, a fleeting thing. But not this one, right? This high priest is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. This Jesus, this high priest, he sits before the Father's throne forever. It's not a temporary offering for our sins. He remains there. He stays right there with the blood of his sacrifice offered up for us. Your forgiveness in Christ is permanent. That's a wondrous thing. 
And he stands there not in a dwelling place, not in a tent that has been set up by man, a reference again to Moses in the tabernacle, to Solomon in the temple, to Zerubbabel in the second temple, and Herod and his temple, whether you want to argue that's a refurbishing of Zerubbabel's or, or a new one altogether. Historically, it's a little confusing sometimes to see the difference. But not this time. This is the true tent that the Lord has set up. In other words, this is the real house of God, not a temporary dwelling place for him among man. This is his own home that he constructed himself. And Jesus is there. Arguably, Jesus is the temple, right, from his own ministry? He made that case. Tear down this temple and he'll, he'll rebuild it in three days? It's one of the things they hated him so much for saying but he was pointing to himself, his own body, and his resurrection after they crucified him. Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts, thus it's necessary that this high priest, Jesus, have something to offer. And that's a question for the kids. What did Jesus offer? What did Jesus offer the Father to take away your sins? They know that one, right? He offered himself. He died on the cross. He shed his blood for us. Now, verse 4 reminds us that the temple in Jerusalem would still be standing at the point that the preacher preaches this sermon. There are priests who offer gifts according to the law on earth. When you get to 70 AD, that's no longer the case. Rome comes, they destroy that temple, and there's never been a temple in Jerusalem since. They still want to rebuild one. In fact, there are many Christians who want to rebuild one because they completely miss the idea that Jesus is the temple somehow. Somehow. No, this is not this is not something we need to be concerned about. You care about Israel because the people that are there are still your neighbors and we're supposed to love them. So pray for them. You know, you can pray for peace over there, that's fine. Uh, but there is absolutely no benefit of another temple being set up. In fact, it might even serve as an idol among Christians. Jesus is the temple because these other ones, right, verse 5, were just a copy. They were a shadow. And now we have the real thing. Why, if you have the real thing, would you want to go back to something that's just a copy? That's not the real, real thing at all. Moses is about to set up the tent there in verse 5 as a reference to Exodus 25:40, where God says this to him, that he should build the tabernacle as he's been instructed. Verse 6, as Christ has obtained a ministry that is more excellent, so his ministry is better, the covenant he mediates is better. We've seen both of those things already. But this next one's a little different because it's enacted on better promises. I'm not sure specifically we've had that phrase before in the book, so that would give us another better um, Jesus' promises are better in the new covenant than the old. So what was promised in the old covenant? If you follow the law, you live long in the land that God is giving to you. There's nothing wrong with that promise, right? But how about this one? Jesus forgives you of all your sins, all of them. And not only does he forgive them, he forgets them. God 
the perfect God who knows all things chooses to not know one thing, your sin. And so when you come and you stand before him on the day of judgment, there's nothing against you. Christ, your high priest, will still be standing there before his Father as your intercessor, as your mediator, as the one who offered his blood for you, and you get to live not just in a, in a, a temporary life in, in a promised land, you get to live a permanent, everlasting life in the promised land of paradise, the new heaven and the new earth. And that's a better promise, isn't it? Uh, So much more so. So if the first covenant had been faultless, there would not have been a need for a second. And you've already talked today with your kids about what is the second. It's that Maundy Thursday, the Lord's Supper, Christ giving himself for us. Verse 8 is going to now take us back to the Old Testament and cite for us. Verses 8 through 12 is Jeremiah chapter 31 Verses 31 through 34, these verses are really a highlight of gospel proclamation in the Old Testament. And this is, this is a strong chapter here in and of itself. But as we bring it forward, let's take a look. Days are coming, I will establish a new covenant. So God, through the prophet Jeremiah, making a promise to his people that there's a better covenant coming. He's pointing them forward to the Messiah that would come to save them. And it's for all his people, Israel and Judah alike, although Jeremiah is preaching at a time when Israel's already been destroyed. And Judah's next. and I mean, Judah's destroyed during Jeremiah's lifetime. He doesn't go with them into Babylon. He goes with a few others down to Egypt where they kill him. This covenant will not be like the one from Egypt. It's not going to be law-based. It's not going to be like Mount Sinai where God drops a whole bunch of commands upon the people. It's not that the law is bad, but we failed it. We couldn't keep it, and God knows it. And so this new covenant is not based on what we do. God wants to save us. And so he's offering a covenant that's simply a free gift. He is offering himself in our place that we will live forever. They did not continue. The Israelites rejected that covenant from his salvation from Egypt and slavery. They turned against them again and again. So I showed no concern for them as a reference to the judgment that God brought upon them and sent them off into exile. Here's the new covenant. I will put my law into their minds and write it on their hearts. That's a reference perhaps to our conscience. It's intriguing to say that because if it is, then did we not have a conscience before? Um, Maybe we should hold this one off, though, until we've read another verse. I will be their God, they shall be my people. They shall not teach each his neighbor, each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. A good spot to talk to our children. Do our neighbors need to know about Jesus? The answer to that question is a resounding yes. So, if our neighbors need to know about Jesus, how can you tell them? That's a great little family conversation. Um, And the beauty of a young child is they might just simply come right out and say, well, we can just tell them about Jesus. We just talk to them. 
And that's an excellent answer. There are other good answers too. There are ways to go about it. But at some point we've got to tell them, right? I mean, that's what Jesus gave us to do in the gospel account and right before he ascends into heaven in Acts 1. So, but in, in the context here, what we're looking at is we don't, we're not here, are we? We are not at the point where we don't have to tell our neighbor, we don't have to tell our brother because they all know Jesus. They don't know him. So this is not yet fulfilled in its fullness. This promise right here in Jeremiah 31 is of paradise. The day is coming, the day is coming when you don't have to tell anyone because we all know Jesus, we all love Jesus, we're all looking at Jesus, and we're all enjoying paradise together. In which case, if we double back to verse 10 then, that idea of the conscience, God's law being on our minds and on our hearts, no longer the conscience really, it's the permanent engravement of God's law upon our hearts to the point where we can't break it anymore. In paradise, there is no sin. I mean, we won't sin against God any longer. There won't even be a temptation to sin. Christ has defeated it, and we'll get to live that way forever. The least of us to the greatest. And don't fight to be the greatest. Remember, the disciples got in trouble with Jesus for that. Instead, if you want to be the greatest, be slave. If you want to be first, be last. Be servant of all. And then you get the verse 12 promise. God will be merciful toward our sin. He will forgive our sin. And I will remember their sins no more. I mean, how fantastic of a promise is that? I already mentioned it. That the God who knows all things chooses to not know one thing, and that is all of our sin. He forgets it. He does not hold it against us. It does not harm this family anymore. That is an incredible place to get in your own family if you can get there. I'm not sure if we can fully get there in this life now where we actually don't hold things against one another any longer. But it's certainly something we should be praying for, that we could be more Christ-like as we forgive one another. All right, so that's it for the day. The new covenant is better than the first one. The promises are better. The high priest who ministers the covenant is better. And so the old has vanished away because the new has come in Jesus. Amen. Praise me.